Good morning, and welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth, meaning, and beauty. I'm Chris Jimerson, Minister for Program Development here at the church, and I have with me our wonderful lay leader this morning, Catherine Govier. We welcome each and every one of you here this morning as we explore the spiritual topic of integrity. We come from a long tradition of seeing a spark of the divine in every person, and it's in that tradition that I invite you to turn to those around you and greet the holy among us this morning. It is also our tradition in Unitarian Universalist churches to begin our services with lighting a chalice, which is a symbol of our faith. Please join me in our words for lighting the chalice. We light the fire of truth and ask to be clear, wise, and humble enough to admit when we don't know. We kindle the warmth of community and ask for open-heartedness and patience. We are grateful to the spirit of life and ask to learn the secret to loving and being loved. Unitarian Universalism is a faith without creed. There's not a set of beliefs we all have to sign on to and agree to. So sometimes people ask us, well, if you don't have a set of common beliefs, what holds you together? Well, I think a lot of things hold us together. Those principles that we just read together, we have a set of values in this church, and out of those values arose our mission statement. We put it on our wall, and we say it together every Sunday. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. If you want to know more about what we mean by beloved community, there's a poster on the back wall of Housen Hall from the Martin Luther King Jr. Center that describes it very, very well. And each service, we've been having a moment for beloved community where we explore the concept in more depth and what it's going to take to build the beloved community. And today I'd like to invite our board chair, Tomas Medina, to come up and talk to us about that for a moment. Um, so I'm excited to talk to you about the eighth principle today on Martin Luther King Day weekend, and such a beautiful weekend it is. So I want to start by saying that I love this church. I love that it's a UU church with our seven principles and our six sources. I love our mission statement, which really resonates with me, especially the part about building beloved community. But most of all, I love all the people here in this church. I feel like you are my people, that I have found my tribe. So I identify as a person of color, or as I sometimes say, I'm part of the global majority. But in this, ch- in this church and in the UU church at large, I'm a minority. For the most part, that doesn't interfere with my feeling at home in UUism, but occasionally it does. I remember when I first walked into the general meeting hall of the only general assembly I've ever attended. General assembly is the the, um, annual gathering of UUs, in case you didn't know. And it was one of the times in my life that I felt the most different. I've never seen such a concentration of white people in one place. (laughs) Um, Then there was the incident also at general assembly where I was walking to a session that was exclusively for people of color a well-intentioned white man who had the responsibility of enforcing the people of color only rule asked me if I knew where I was going. I told him I was going into the session for people of color. Then he asked me if I was a person of color. 
So I held out my arm, placed it next to his so he could see the difference in our skin tones, and said yes. <laughs> and I walked in. And aside from specific incidents like that, there's just the fact that I grew up in a different culture than most EUs. Both of my parents are Panamanian, and I grew up in a Latin Roman Catholic family, and that's just a little bit different than most people here. <laughs> Nevertheless, despite the differences, I still feel that you are my people. I have found my tribe. I think the one reason I can say that is because I come from relative privilege. My grandfather was president of the Supreme Court in Panama. My uncle-in-law was president of the country of Panama. I attended UC Berkeley and Columbia University and have a law degree. And honestly, I don't know how I'd relate to this predominantly right church if I didn't come from the advantages that I did. I'm not 100% sure that a gay brown man like me who didn't have the advantages would feel at home here. And that's a shame because this is an awesome place and we have such great potential for building a diverse multicultural community. And that's why I'm standing here before you. Black Lives of UU, or Blue has proposed to the UUA, which is our parent organization, an eighth principle to add to our existing seven principles. The eighth principle, the proposed eighth principle, I should say, reads, We, the member congregations of the Unitarian Universalist Association, covenant to affirm and promote journeying towards spiritual wholeness by working to build a diverse, multicultural, beloved community by our actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and in our institutions. And so this, this uh, proposed eighth principle was proposed by Blue in 2017 to the UUA, and the UUA is in the process of considering it. Eventually, it may come up for a vote at our General Assembly, and it actually takes two General Assembly meetings for it to, um, to pass. So it's at least two years in the future. So we on the board want to know your thoughts about the Eighth Principle. How do you think it would change our church? How do you think it would change you? As a congregation, we can decide that we want to tell our delegates to General Assembly that we support the Eighth Principle. Or, as a congregation, we may decide we want to adopt it ourselves before the UUA adopts it. And as you may have noticed, this Eighth Principle does dovetail nicely with one of the ends that we have, which, and the ends are just articulated ways we have of uh, living towards our mission. And that end says... We partner with other organizations and faith communities to dismantle a culture of white supremacy and other systems of oppression within ourselves, within our church community, and beyond our walls. But before you say, of course, I support the Eighth Principle, I want you to consider what that really means. Does adopting the Eighth Principle that mean that we and our church will have to change, or can we go along doing what we're doing now? So to submit your thoughts on the eighth principle to the board, I'd ask you to write them down on the comment sheet that hopefully you received when you entered the sanctuary. And if you don't have a comment card, you can pick one up at the table that we have. Oh, and um, if you don't have one, raise your hand because we're passing them out. Um, also, they're available um, at our eighth principle discovery table, which is in the gallery, um, the art gallery. And... When you, so we're going to give you a few minutes to 
to start filling out the uh, card now, and then we'll ask that you submit it into the comment card box at the 8th Principal Discovery Table. And at the 8th Principal Discovery Table as well, we have material on the 8th Principal um, from Blue, the organization that proposed it. And we have uh, information about the UUA process to adopt it. Um, and we're also there to chat with you about it. Um, and if you need more time to fill out your card, no worries. We're going to be there for three weeks. So um, we look forward to getting your feedback. Oh, and also to get your uh, thoughts flowing about what you might consider about the eighth principle, here's some questions for you. And you don't have to answer these specific questions. Um, oh, they're up there. Uh, so uh, I will just read them quickly. As you continue to ponder the heart of this nationwide call for deeper systematic change, what do you want our commitment as a church to be? How will your behavior change if First CU adopts the eighth principle? What changes would you hope to see at First CU as a result of adopting the principle? And how would the eighth principle affect your spiritual life? So thank you, and I look forward to hearing what our congregation has to say about it. Our reading this morning is by Rachel Naomi Remen from, from her Kitchen Table Wisdom. Wholeness is never lost. It is only forgotten. Integrity rarely means that we need to add something to ourselves. It is more an undoing than a doing. A freeing ourselves from beliefs we have about who we are and ways we have been persuaded to fix ourselves to know who we genuinely are. Even after many years of seeing, thinking, and living one way, we are able to reach past all that to claim our integrity and live in a way we may never have expected to live. Being with people at such times is like watching them pat their pockets, trying to remember where they have put their soul. Often in reclaiming the freedom to be who we are, we remember some basic human quality, an unsuspected capacity for love or compassion or some other part of our common birthright as human beings. What we find is almost always a surprise, but it is also familiar, like something we have put in the back of a drawer long ago. Once we see it, we know it as our own. This is the time in our service where we breathe together. And breathing together, feeling the loving presence of those around us, we follow our breath to a deeper place inside. A place where that spark of the divine in each of us resides, that source of wisdom, that place of integrity. And breathing together, we enter into a time of sacred silence together, remembering that human sounds and the sounds of small children are a part of that silence in this congregation. Breathing in, breathing out, 
we enter into that time of sacred silence together. Lately, I've been remembering again the sometimes heart-rending time that some of you have heard me speak about before, the earlier days of AIDS when we had no effective treatments for HIV, nor did we have effective treatments for the many sometimes fatal infections associated with it. During those times, I was working as the director of a nonprofit that tried to bring clinical trials, research studies of potential treatments for HIV and these associated infections to folks struggling with the disease in our community. Our purpose in expanding these studies beyond the usual academic settings and into community clinics was twofold. First, we wanted to get more people enrolled into them more quickly so that the science could advance more quickly. Secondly, we wanted to provide access to these potentially effective experimental treatments to folks for whom there were no good treatment options and who faced dire and imminent consequences. That's a euphemism for saying that they were dying. 
Our folks who were so desperate to get into one of these studies and our doctors often faced a difficult dilemma, though. Clinical research studies have inclusion criteria, a list of medical and other conditions one must meet to be eligible for the study, and they also have exclusion criteria, conditions that would prevent a person from being able to enroll in the study. Now, there are good reasons for these criteria involving the scientific design of the studies as well as protecting patient safety. Far too often, however, during that time, the entry criteria for the studies for HIV were too unnecessarily stringent. This was most, most often due to an overly cautious Food and Drug Administration not used to dealing with so many people in such a desperate situation. So, were our patients to bend the rules to save their very life, potentially? to save the life of their friends, hide part of their medical history that might exclude them? Were our physicians who might suspect or even know to have looked the other way? Would doing so risk the validity of the studies themselves? Would these folks and these physicians be acting with integrity if they bent these unreasonable and unjust rules? Well, I can tell you that they did. People were desperate. People's lives were at stake. Eventually, this became such an issue nationwide that the entry criteria for studies began to get loosened, and the FDA also began allowing what's called large open access trials. These are basically studies looking at the safety of these drugs, but with very loose criteria so lots and lots of people could take part. These open access studies became a model that's still used today for cancer and other life threatening illnesses. I particularly want to share with you the story of one of our physicians who provided care for some of our sickest people who were in the hospital. So often, the drugs available for treating their life-threatening HIV-associated infections were simply failing. Well, this doctor kept up on all the latest science and on treating such infections and would also often find out about compound treatments, mixtures of several drugs administered at once that were showing great promise. The problem was, though, that these compound treatments weren't available in our area most often, even through clinical trials, and the pharmacist at the hospital refused to do the compounding to create them. Understandably, the pharmacists could have lost their license by doing so, and it would have quite possibly been, oh, a little illegal. So this physician would sneak down to the pharmacy late at night, mix the compound treatment themselves, and then take it up to their patient's room and administer it themselves, no nurses involved. And time after time after time, not every time, but so, so many times, their patients survived because that physician did that. It worked. They lived at least for a while longer. And yet, there were also unknown safety risks, potential interactions between such compounded drugs that could have caused possibly severe side effects. And it was, as I said, probably at least testing the boundaries of legality. Was this acting with integrity? Well, I've been reminded by all of this by the current horrible situation at our border and within our immigration catastrophe that pretends to be a just system. 
Immigrants and their advocates face unjust laws, unjust interpretation and administration of laws, sometimes just outright law-breaking by a bigoted and racist administration. Recently, the federal government tried twice twice to send one of our fellow Unitarian Universalists to prison simply for giving water to migrants crossing the desert. I'm pleased to report that they failed in that effort. And so, so these immigrants in these desperate situations, sometimes at threat for their very lives along with their supporters, are choosing to defy these unjust immigration laws in some cases. But then, then the administration and the forces of hate take these examples from these cases, exaggerate them, and use them to paint all immigrants as criminals and lawbreakers. So, is breaking a law we consider unjust acting with integrity? Who gets to decide which laws are just and which are not? My friends... I can tell you that my perspective is that in, that in both the cases of people with HIV and their doctors breaking the rules and the actions of immigrants and their supporters, I believe that they were acting with profound integrity. Human lives are at stake, were at stake. I believe that all of these folks reached down to where a deep well of integrity resided within them and faced with no really good choices, made the most life-giving, the most soul-affirming decision available to them. They brought pockets of wholeness into broken and morally incoherent systems that were shattering people's lives. This month, as a religious community, as you heard earlier, we are exploring what it means to be a people of integrity. I wanted to start this morning by revisiting that time when the AIDS epidemic left us with such difficult choices, to lift up the immigration atrocity we are witnessing now, to illustrate how sometimes living with integrity is not easy. I think sometimes when it comes to integrity, we tend to take this Dudley Do-Right approach of just do the right thing, when in fact, it is so much more complicated than that. Our word integrity stems from the Latin integer, meaning whole and complete. As in mathematics, wherein an integer is a number that is not divided into fractions, integrity implies that we are not divided. Our actions, speech, and methods are consistent with our core self, our values, our aspirations. We are whole, and this wholeness helps us to maintain our integrity even when the ethical choices we face are complex and unclear. This more nuanced conceptualization of integrity, I believe, has profound implications for us both as individuals and as communities. At the individual level, author, educator, and advocate Parker Palmer writes that integrity comes when we get in touch with our very soul. Now, soul can simply mean the essence of who we are, the person we were born to be, though for some of us it may have mystical connotations also. Parker writes of observing the birth of his first grandchild, What I saw was clear and simple. My granddaughter arrived on earth as this kind of person rather than that, or that, or that. 
We are born with a seed of selfhood that contains the spiritual DNA of our uniqueness and encoded birthright knowledge of who we are, why we are here, and how we are related to others. We may abandon that knowledge as the years go by, but it never abandons us. So for Parker, sometimes we can get separated from our truest self because of fear, social pressure, and the like. So regaining our integrity means reintegrating our souls, embracing that at our core, we are enough. Now, embracing that we are enough as who we are, imperfections and all, while at the same time embracing that most of us have this desire to grow and improve, can seem like a paradox sometimes, can't it? Here are two things I think can help move this from paradox to a sort of both-and conceptualization. Dr. Brene Brown, author and science researcher, encourages us to approach other people with the assumption that they are doing the best that they can with the tools that they have. I think we can offer this grace to ourselves. If I am doing the best that I can with the tools that I have, then my efforts at self-improvement can be seen not so much as changing the core of who I am, but as learning new tools for maintaining wholeness and integrity. Second, I think also, as the reading mentioned, we tend to think of growth as always being about adding something new. However, quite often, becoming more whole involves letting go of something harmful or or unearthing some part of ourselves that we've lost. Here's another really cool both-and. Acting with integrity will nourish our souls and help us be whole, and nourishing our souls through spiritual practices and engaging in faithful community will fortify our integrity when we face difficult situations such as those that I was describing earlier. We now pause for a moment of harping on the importance of spiritual practices, as promised in a sermon a couple of weeks ago. I want to return to this idea of growth often involving unearthing something we have lost. For those of us who have experienced having our identity marginalized, I think this can be an especially important aspect of wholeness and claiming our integrity. Actress America Ferreira, whom you may know from the movie Real Women Have Curves or the TV series Ugly Betty, has a TED Talk called My Identity is My Superpower. In it, she speaks of dreaming of becoming an actress ever since she was a nine-year-old girl doing dance performances across the den in her house. But then she tells of later on going to her first professional audition and being asked, Can you read that part again, dear, and sound more Hispanic? She describes how how even after having found success, she still faced casting stereotypes and being turned down for roles because, quote, you look too Latino. She says she began to straighten her hair. She tried to lose weight. She avoided the sun so her skin wouldn't turn so brown. Finally, though, She had gotten cast in a movie with a Latinx character, but was told her casting couldn't be announced until the white lead character got cast because the movie would sell better if the white person was announced first. 
Well, she had what I would call an epiphany. She was no longer going to change herself into something she wasn't. She was going to reclaim her true identity and work to change the system instead. Here she is describing this altered perspective. Uh Was that it is possible to be the person who genuinely wants to see change while also being the person whose actions keep things the way they are. And what it's led me to believe is that change isn't going to come by identifying the good guys and the bad guys. That conversation lets us all off the hook because most of us are neither one of those. Change will come when each of us has the courage to question our own fundamental values and beliefs and then see to it that our actions lead to our best intentions. I am just one of millions of people who have been told that in order to fulfill my dreams, in order to contribute my talents to the world, I have to resist the truth of who I am. I, for one, am ready to stop resisting and to start existing as my full and authentic self. If I could go back and say anything to that nine-year-old dancing in the den, dreaming her dreams, I would say, my identity is not my obstacle. My identity is my superpower. Because the truth is, I am what the world looks like. You are what the world looks like. Collectively, we are what the world actually looks like. And in order for our systems to reflect that, they don't have to create a new reality. They just have to stop resisting the one we already live in. I want to close by holding up that this wholeness that is so vital to our being able to live with integrity as individuals is also crucial for us as a religious community. Our integrity as a religious community comes alive when we get in touch with the core of our faith, when we live out those principles that we read together earlier, when our ways of being are whole, consonant with the religious values this church has expressed, transcendence, community, compassion, courage, transformation. And I think that to do that, to live those values, those principles We have to keep our principles and values in front of us, keep them explicit in our hearts and minds. That's why I support the proposed eighth principle you heard about earlier. It takes something essential, essential to the integrity of our faith that is implicit in our other principles and makes it explicit. And my beloveds, We face a heavy challenge in these days in which we currently live because we can't be consistent with our principles and values unless we speak out, take action against the gross human rights abuses of our current administration. We can't claim our integrity as a religious community unless we rise up to counter with love the emboldenment of hate groups and the increased hate crimes they are committing against people who are already marginalized. 
I don't use terms like alt-right or white nationalists because they're euphemisms that soften what is at the core of these groups. To know what we are really up against, we have to say what they are, hate groups. All the while, we must resist returning the hate ourselves. Now, I know none of us can do everything that needs to be done. We can't all participate in all the rallies and marches, make all the phone calls, sign all the petitions, do all the visits with Congress critters and all the things. We can all do what we can, though. Spend a little time helping register folks to vote. Give what we can to those organizations that are doing the work of the revolution. Make what calls we can. Help our children understand what living with integrity in the world looks like to our faith. And this is an election year. So what's one thing we can all do come November? That's right. Vote. Encourage others to vote. Help get folks to the polls if you have the time and ability. March. That's right. Parker Palmer says that to be whole... We need trustworthy relationships and tenacious communities of support. It's part of why I love serving this congregation so much. I believe that you are just such a trustworthy, tenacious community of support and integrity. Amen. Now please join me in saying our words for extinguishing the chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.